0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll find out how kids in Connecticut are learning skills to help them become more mindful. We'll also hear how insurance giant Aetna is prioritizing the practice of mindfulness for its employees and its customers. But first, what's the secret to creativity in today's world where many of us are focused on advancing our careers? We live in a time where it's become harder to disconnect from work, thanks to that smartphone always nearby. How can we step away from the hustle of life to be more in tune with ourselves and, mo- and more creative in our endeavors? Icelandic consultant Hrún Dottir had this very question. Frustrated with bureaucracy, she quit her job and decided to figure out for herself how human beings can be more intuitive and reach their creative potential. Her exploration is documented in her new film Insay, The Sea Within, which premiered in New York City in September. Prund is in Connecticut as a Yale-Greenberg World Fellow and
2: joins us now. Welcome to where we live. Thank you very much. So what are your uh, impressions of the United States? I'm loving it here. I'm totally loving it here. Uh, Yale is treating me really well, you know, surrounded by amazing people. And the weather is nice, relatively stable. (laughs) So that's nice compared to my my country.
0: Um, So you were a former United Nations employee. So what did you do for the U.N.?
2: So I, uh, first, I was a program manager of, of UNIFEM, which is now called UN Women, and it's the agency with the UN that uh, deals with women's rights and gender equality. And I was sent to Kosovo after the war in 2001, and I headed their uh, agency there. So dealing with reconstruction, defining democracy, building women's leadership role creating a legal framework in order to do that, you know, in in order to promote gender equality. And while I was there, uh, I was offered a permanent position with the UN, which means that I took a so-called competitive examination, which is offered to people uh, in different countries of the world at each time. And about 3% of people who take that exam for two days are offered the permanent position. So that's a very rare opportunity. I moved to Geneva in 2002, And I stayed there for about two years. And in 2004, I decided to resign from a a lifelong permanent position with the UN. It was a big decision.
0: So take us back. So when you first um, were offered the permanent position,
2: was this like a dream job for you to work for the UN? It was a dream job. So I graduated with a master's degree in 2000. And so it came really quickly after that. I worked in London for a human rights organization, and then I was offered this position in Kosovo shortly after that. I had two uh, goals when I graduated. I wanted to either work for the Red Cross or the UN, and I wanted to work in a post-conflict context. So I, was, I felt really, I mean, things happened really, really fast for me. Uh, getting a position like that in Kosovo is, I think, relatively rare. So I was only 27 when I headed uh, the program there, and uh, yeah, it was totally a dream job. But you said you resigned by 2004.
0: What was th- what was it about the job that frustrated you?
2: So in Kosovo, I was I was working very closely with the people that the UN was serving. You know, um, and when I moved to Geneva, I was on track to become. It, it's similar to when you work for the foreign foreign service or something. So on track to becoming a diplomat almost. And what I encountered there was this oversized bureaucracy and hierarchy. And I felt, to put it short, I felt like I was being put into a freezer. So there's, there's lots of things that happen in a work environment that's based around these things. And in, I just really felt that um, because I'd always had issues with what it was all for. And I just felt that we were serving a system instead of the system serving people on the planet. And my ideals for working for the UN haven't changed, but I just felt like this really wasn't the way to do it.
0: Resigning from a a job that at one time seemed like a dream, that's not an easy thing to do. How did you get to that point where you felt comfortable, well, it was time for me to let this job go
2: and maybe explore something new? So I, you know, even if I was thinking about these things while I was working in Geneva, I didn't act on it because I was in a in a in a in a wonderful comfort zone in a sense, you know. My my paychecks arrived every month. I was living a good life. But the thought kept coming to me that, you know, I wanted to do something more creative, you know. I was feeling restrained. And I ended up hitting a wall as I call it. I guess it's called the burnout today. I didn't even know that term then. And it really forced me to reconsider where I was heading in life, what I was doing, how I was doing it. And at one point, when I was just totally, you know, I had no energy, I was exhausted. I went down to the beach in the small town that I live in in Iceland, I was there for a visit. And I had this vision of myself uh, being 60 plus, And I really wasn't doing the job that I was doing in Geneva. I had traveled the world. I have met people. I had been inspired and moved by people. I was doing creative things. I was writing and doing storytelling, getting people's stories across. And I don't know, just being touched by people and touching people's lives. And I just realized that uh, my work in Geneva wasn't going to sort of bring that dream to fruition.
0: So you wanted to learn how to be more creative, to find a new, um, I guess, a,
2: a career path where you felt more fulfilled. How did you go about doing that? Where did you start? <laughs> so having taken that decision, it was not an easy one. So people around me would say, like, what are you thinking? Like, why do you do that? You have no idea where you're going. So in short, I was really going into the unknown, and I was I was petrified, you know. I wasn't sure if I could. How was I going to work more creatively but slowly but surely, I just knew that I had to delve more into where my shortcomings were. And I, during this time, it was a hard time in my life. But during this time, because I'm a, I'm a big nerd, you know, I read a lot and I'm very curious and I collect a lot of information. And I realized that I consist of two rhythms. So one is the analytical and the logical one. And the other one is the creative and intuitive one. And I had totally neglected the intuitive and the creative one. So I decided to think of ways to combine the two rhythms and do a documentary film. I was going to do a PhD, but there was no PhD program that I found that that would enroll me without putting me into one discipline. And I didn't want to go into one discipline because the purpose of my work is really to say that we need to unbox the way we think. We need to think more in a flow. We need to make associations between different parts in order to make sense out of the big context that we live in. So a documentary was done, and it's taken six years to do, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Hrun
0: Gunsten Dottir, an Icelandic consultant, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and writer. She's also co director and author of this documentary she just mentioned, Insaye, The Sea Within. So tell me about the six year journey to create a documentary that looks at
2: creativity and intuition. Where do you begin? Good question. So uh, a friend of mine, Christine Olofsdottir, who is the co-director of the film and the producer, so she has been a filmmaker for many, many years. And we had this kind of similar interest in intuition. And so we decided to partner up and and do something about it. And we, you know, we, I had done a lot of research about it. Uh, We wrote down names of people that we wanted to ask almost naive questions, you know, about intuition. What is it, you know? Are we connected to intuition, the world inside us? And what is this world inside us? So we mapped down names of people who could help us, people that are in science, business professors, artists, spiritual leaders, neuroscientists, different people. We traveled the world, we spoke to them. And then we also followed a school program for kids in the UK. Kids that are finding it difficult to focus in school, they're finding it difficult to establish relationship with friends. They don't feel as well as we would hope them to feel. And so we followed them. And in short, what was interesting was that we are now increasingly teaching kids to connect within in order to be able to cope and hopefully flourish. And just that fact tells me a lot about the world we live in and the state of the world that we actually need to teach ourselves and our kids to do that.
0: When I think of intuition, I'm thinking of um, that feeling that you get. It's like a gut feeling or a sense that this is something that should
2: be happening. Um, what, did, what did you learn about intuition? So, uh, you know, I had done a lot of work like research about before. I had tried to tune in with my own intuition and, and work with it. But what surprised me in the making of the film was that how far and how advanced we are actually in mapping out what intuition is. I mean – there's so much we don't know about it. There's so much about the brain that we don't know. But after we w- we became able to uh, scan the brain and, more it, and monitor more how it functions in reality, then we've begun to know more. So, I mean, I had ideas about, you know, we definitely need to use all our senses. We need to embody experience. We need to immerse ourselves in experience in order to build up a strong intuition. And the journey around the film really showed me hands on how people are actually doing that. So one of the uh, people that we talked to in the film is Enric Sala, who is an ocean explorer in residence with the National Geographic. And he's very passionate about the ocean. He had a professor position, uh, which he resigned from uh, when he was probably around 30 or 35. And the reason why he resigned was that he felt really disconnected from the ocean that he was researching. So after that, he spent most of his time uh, diving and just living in the ocean in order to build a strong intuition about it. And his record as an ocean explorer, somebody who wants to protect uh, pristine parts of the ocean, is just incredible. So that was really one of the things that really inspired me to pursue this.
0: What do you say to people
2: um, who are
0: listening to this? and are thinking, well, it's it's hard for me to just immerse myself in something that I love or something that's my passion because you know I have the nine to five job, I have the kids at home I have to take care of, I've got the bills to pay. Um, we feel like we're we are we have so many responsibilities and requirements that we can't just uh, just take off and, and try to have this time to to
2: feel better connected to the world around us. I would say you don't have to take off; just be present in all those things. So the most simple advice that I give to people is to pay attention to what it is you pay attention to. So we pay attention to a lot of things. you know. I mean, we're constantly being bombarded with information and destruction all the time. But the question is, do you pay attention to how you pay attention? So when you start focusing on that, that's when you start to become aligned in everything you do. And everything you do has something to teach you about the world you live in and yourself and how you cope. So being mindful in that way is really the way to tap into your intuition and to make the most of what you can do about, you know, make the most of your skills and talent and gifts to, the, to yourself and the world around you. Because intuition is, you know, on my way here, I had this wonderful conversation with a former fighter pilot. And I said to him, uh, so he's in his 60s, probably. And I said to him, so what is good intuition to you? And he said, you know, when you you take a decision based on your intuition, take your time to take your decision. That's important. So intuition is not an impulse. It's not like a decision you take in a second based on fear, perhaps. And that's not always the best desi- in a decision. But he said, take your time to take your decision and have confidence in your intuition. And I think that's the thing that we need to focus on. Because the world we live in is like an ocean. So first thing is to keep your head up. Otherwise you drown. <laughs> yeah. So that applies to kids and adults alike. But you need to have confidence in, in taking a decision that you believe is going to take you to the right place. And confidence is not something that we're being taught, right? I mean, I wasn't taught that at school. So it's like you need to know yourself well enough to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes in order to be cognizant about the context around you, in order to take the most sensible decisions that you want. But you also need courage because sometimes intuition is about an idea you have that you've never seen in action before. And people may tell you that this is not something you should pursue, it's a silly idea, somebody has probably done it before, and we have these voices in our hats that will stop us, you know, the editor. But we need to be confident enough to say, no, you know what? I think this is the right way to do it. I think I want to pursue this path. And that's something. That's another thing. That has to do with confidence. You know, in order to be confident, you need to know yourself. We're talking about your
0: documentary. Tell us about the meaning. Hopefully I'm not butchering the title in (laughs)
2: Sayyid. But uh,
0: what is the meaning surrounding that, that particular name?
2: So insayir is the Icelandic word for intuition. And I love that word. It's very poetic. Insayir means the sea within. So it implies movement, flow. It's the world of vision, imagination, and creativity. But insayir is also about seeing within and to see from the inside out. And this was a many-year journey for you to see from the inside out? Yeah, it was. And I think that... There is a lot in, our, in the way that we, we, we do things in our society and education and the stimuli around us that encourages us more to act from the outside in, to react to everything around us. But in order to shift the center of gravity in the way we act and think and do, it's important to put the balance between external and intrin- intrinsic you know, motivations that we have.
0: Earlier, you mentioned uh, a kids program in the UK. Um, what did you learn about that program? And what did you learn about the children? Because you know, when we're kids, it, creativity almost comes naturally. And then as we get older and we've got certain expectations, it's like we push away that cre- creativity, that, that uh, impulse to be creative.
2: Yeah. So that program is amazing. It's called Mind Up. It actually originates in, in, in the States. Uh, what they do is that they combine ancient uh, knowledge with new scientific discovery. So they will k- teach them mindfulness. They will teach them how to meditate. But they actually call it brain breaks, which I find very fascinating. And I think it's just to – this just my theory. I think it's just to um, enable recognition from people because we tend to be a little bit suspicious of more spiritual things like meditation, although I think this is changing. Another thing that I found fascinating about MindTap was that they are taught how the brain functions. So in the film, you will see them, you know, beautiful explanations. We allow the kids in the film to explain to us how the brain works. They know much better than we do. And they say, like, you know, when I go for a break and I get really angry and I want to, you know, beat someone or say something horrible or scream or something, then I understand that my amygdala, you know, is really taking over. So I need to, you know, be conscious of my amygdala and take a deep (laughs) breath, and then I do something else. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I wish I would have known that. If I would have known that when I was working for the UN in a very hard situation in post-conflict Kosovo, I would have been able to find a better balance between, you know, my inner world and the world around me. But I didn't know how to, so I just kind of leaked out in that situation instead of knowing how to re-energize myself. Center myself and be more aligned. Your documentary has
0: premiered um, in several places. I mean, when people um, see the film, what do you
2: hope they get out of it? I hope that when people see the film, they feel inspired to trust their intuition more, explore it, listen to their inner voice, because our inner voice doesn't scream at us, you know, it'll never grab us by the neck and tell, tell us to sit down. It's just quiet, it's quiet. So what we need to do is to quiet our minds and we need to tap into it and understand what it's telling us. And when we do that, we become connected. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. Just being connected is all that matters because then you will last for longer. You know, you'll be happier. You can contribute more. You'll be more creative. So our hope is really that people connect to that beautiful source of wisdom that we all have inside us part of what we need to do today and part of the reason why I'm focusing on intuition and creativity is that we really need to rethink how we think. We need to avoid using old tools to address new challenges because we'll just be keeping doing the same mistakes all over again. And one of the things that uh, are kind of fresh in my mind is, for example, in, in Syria, there's war going on there. And the many countries that are trying to resolve that war They rely on international definitions, legal definitions of war. But these definitions don't even match the realities on the ground. So the old definition of war is two states are waiting war, but the wars that are being waged today are often proxy wars, which means that they are between different countries and groups, armed groups that don't even, um, they don't even take place in, in the state that actually is the main perpetrator in the war. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, we really need to define, again, what war is in order to address it uh, as it should be addressed. So that's one of the many things. And I also think that with regards to education, what are we educating our kids and ourselves for? Like, really, what, what is education about? My daughter is 13, and she so will tell me, Mom, I don't understand why I need to learn this and this and that. Why can't they just teach me how to be alone in a mountain? Why can't it just teach me how I deal with friends? Why can't it just teach me what hobbies I should choose to know myself? So I think that's something that we really need to think about, because at the end of the day, when you have so much turmoil around you, this applies to individual lives and the world that we live in. The strongest thing that we can build is a strong inner compass. It's based on values our own sort of humanity, our own creative spirit, our own sense of belonging. And when we don't feel sense of belonging, for example, you know, that increases our tendency to be depressed, anxious, stressed. Depression is becoming the leading cause of disability and illness in the Western world and in the world in general. That must tell us something. So I think that reconnecting to the most inner core of what it means to be human and taking it from there is, like, one of the most urgent things that we can do in the world today.
0: Can I ask you, when your daughter asks you that question, what do you tell her?
2: Oh, my God, that's a really <laughs> tough question because I remember thinking that myself when I was in school. And partly it's being rebellious against having to learn new things. But what I tried to tell her is that, you know, maybe you can have a conversation with the teachers about it. And maybe you can think together how you can change the classroom, you know, in that sense. But I also tell her, like, I also know that I'm a parent and I work a lot. So the most precious thing that I can give her is experience and experiencing the world with me. So it's time. And that's another thing that we are all being confined, time with our kids. And just to touch the world, you know, take things step by step, not deciding how it's going to end. Just really test it. Be courageous about how things evolve that we do throughout the day that's all I can do. I'm learning, you know, but it's, it's, it's a balance, but I try to, I mean, when I think about my kids, I have two daughters, one is nine and the other one is 13. I think about if I have something to give them as a mother, it's, it's independence, self-confidence, generosity, and love for life. And so I just try to use it as a compass throughout my parenting Well, it sounds like a good approach. (laughs) (laughs) I've been speaking with Hrund gunstein
0: Dottir, an Icelandic consultant, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and writer. She's in Connecticut as a 2016 Yale-Greenberg World Fellow. She's also co-director of the documentary Inseye, The Sea Within. It explores the art of flourishing, leading, and innovating in an age of distraction and transformation. You can find out more on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for coming in today, Hrund. Thank you for inviting me. Coming up, we'll talk with an educator about how kids in Connecticut schools are learning to be more mindful. This is where we live. this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpa-Fanschel. We just heard from Icelandic filmmaker Hruinn Gunstein-Dottir, and she mentioned the school program called MindUp. It's a program of the Hahn Foundation, which teaches young children to understand how their brain functions and how to be mindful, something we as adults rarely understand ourselves. We wanted to learn more about how MindUp is being used in Connecticut schools. So joining us now is Jessica Grotola. She's assistant principal at the International Magnet School for Global Citizenship in South Windsor. Jessica spearheaded the introduction and implementation of the MindUp program in her school. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So we know that our days are packed. And even when we're talking about students, uh, there's lots of expectations put on them by parents and schools, lots of extra tr- extracurricular activities. Um, why are kids so stressed? Is it all of these uh, expectations that are there for them?
1: Yes, as you mentioned, those are all daily things that occur that can stress out not only children but parents. And I think that, you know, for us as models to model being a little bit more de stressed is something that we don't think about very often. And so we ourselves, when we're dealing with our children every day, are actually modeling for them how to deal with these these stressful behaviors and stressful things that are occurring throughout the day. And so Mind Up actually allows us to help the students have a, a mindset of their own on why these behaviors might be happening, why these adults are acting in in such ways throughout the day.
0: So how did you hear about MindUp and what made you think this could be a program at the school that you're at? So at
1: the Crack International Magnet School for Global Citizenship, we have a very diverse population. We have students coming from us, 50% from Hartford, as well as 38 surrounding towns. And so we have a very diverse population. That population comes with many different stressors, many different backgrounds, and Mind Up actually allows us to gain the perspective of others and, and learn empathy for others as well. So a couple of years ago, my former principal was at a, an IRA our uh, international reading association conference down in Miami and she had heard about the mind up program and we were building our own social skills curriculum at the time because we know how important it is for students to have social emotional curriculum in order to build those skills and how to interact with one another and so when we got some programs um, some pro program booklets from MindUp and we were looking through it, we really thought that it would help support our social emotional curriculum that we were implementing within the school. The alignment between our international baccalaureate curriculum and MindUp was a perfect fit. So we were thrilled to bring it to our teachers and our students. So this is something that did you get a grant for? Yes, we did. We got a grant. So it was very easy. We contacted MindUp through the website. They informed us about the grant because, you know, as a public school, it can be very difficult to get funding. So we got a grant for $5,000, which was a wonderful kickoff for us. That enabled us to have a full day of training for all of our staff members as well as all of the materials that we needed for our staff members. It also allowed halfway through the implementation of the program a trainer coming in and talking to us about the challenges of implementing MindUp, as well as helping us sort of troubleshoot um, some of the things that were, were challenges for us, as well as a parent component. So we were able to hook our parents and hook our other stakeholders into what we were doing in MindUp. So the grant was
0: phenomenal for us, and it really allowed us to get started with this quickly. So, if I understand uh, MindUp correctly, uh, there's a component where you're actually teaching what pre-K elementary kids about brain science. Yeah. The neuroscience piece is quite amazing.
1: It's very funny to hear, you know, a four-year-old or a (laughs) three-year-old running around talking about their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. But it really is, you know, our students are so egocentric, especially in the elementary schools, all they're thinking about is themselves. And if you don't have that regulation, if you you can't understand how your own brain works, then it's very difficult for you to have any sort of self-regulation. So we really do talk about how the parts of the brains have three different purposes, we give the kids visuals as well as hand signals to use so that when their amygdala gets a little out of whack or we like to call it flipping our lid when it gets a little out of whack because we're feeling stressed or frustrated acknowledging that taking a moment to acknowledge i'm not feeling like my normal self right now what are the some of the things or some of the strategies that i could do to calm myself down or even just stopping and acknowledging that is huge because it allows you to be more proactive then reactive to that emotion that you're feeling that as a four-year-old, you might not know that this is a feeling of stress. You're just sort of uncomfortable with how things are feeling at that moment in time.
0: So take us into the classroom. So on a day where, you know, kids are acting up or maybe they're upset because their classmate jostled them or... How does understanding the brain help them control their emotions before acting up?
1: Well, it's really interesting. So as you said, if someone jostles you by by mistake, sometimes the initial reaction would be to yell at that student or maybe jostle them back. What this allows them to, to do is take a moment and say, I need a break. So you'll see our students, we have break spaces in our classrooms. So if they need to really physically remove themselves from the area, they'll go over to the break space. They'll take a couple of deep breaths. There are are squishy items, play-doh, things like that that they can manipulate with their hands because sometimes the students just need that kinesthetic piece. So being able to acknowledge that they need a break is huge because we don't even do that
0: as adults many times. That's interesting. So you're giving the power to the child to understand that, you know, if they're feeling upset about something, to take a break themselves. Instead of, you know, as a parent, oftentimes they'll say, okay, maybe you need some quiet time. And we force them almost in a way to go sit in the corner and take a break. Right. That doesn't always work. Well, that's true. And so it does take time to teach
1: them, to teach them the signals of and to acknowledge when they do need a break. But it is something and the teachers can say, maybe you'd like to take a break right now. And the student can say yes or no. It's more about them being proactive and acknowledging that they're feeling something different in themselves. And oftentimes you'll see students that will just be sitting quietly for a moment. And if you check in with them, they'll be like, oh, I was just centering myself. I was just doing some core practice. And so it's amazing to hear, you know, third or fourth graders say that.
0: So beyond learning about neuroscience, um, um, we also understand there's something called breathing exercises that you, or you work into the classroom. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. So those are brain breaks that we have, and these they happen three times a day. They can also happen more than that if you're having a test or something that might be triggering a student to feel anxious. So we really like to start our day. We start as a whole school. We, there's a chime that you ring, and there's a little mantra that we read out for for all of our school, where we just take a moment to be in the moment, to focus on our breathing, to think about, to let everything wash through our bodies, to focus on what we want our goals to be for the day. And then we do that again after lunch, just to kind of regroup. And then at the end of the day, just to sort of close out our day so that we're all beginning and ending and a very calm and soothing place.
0: How do you incorporate that Incorporate that into the classroom when uh, we understand there's lots of, of standards and things that teachers have to get through in a day in the learning process? How do you do that?
1: It is definitely a challenge, and we were very lucky. Our staff came together, and, and we worked with the 15 lessons that MindUp's gave gives us and aligned them with the common core state standards as well as the next generation science standards. So we, we worked with it so that it would fit in in natural areas throughout the day. However, what we know is the academic rigor is very high. And so if we want our students to succeed, we need to be able to have them in a space where they can succeed. So if they're overly anxious about it, no matter how many standards we have, they're not going to do well at it. So taking that, you know, 15, that three minute break, that 15 minutes a day just to re Focus really pays off in the long run because it allows our students to train their brain to understand that they're going to be focused on what they're learning and what their next task is.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa I'm talking with Jessica Grutola. She's assistant principal at the International Magnet School for Global Citizenship in South Windsor. She helped introduce and implement the MindUp program in her school. So along those lines, how have you seen uh, teaching mindfulness in the classroom impacting student achievement? So, this was our first year
1: last year, was our first year really implementing it. And so, what we have noticed is that because the students are able to calm themselves down or self regulate themselves, what they are able to do is focus longer on the tasks at hand. So, as I said before, just taking that three minutes after recess to refocus and say, okay, now we're getting ready for math, now we're getting ready for social studies, let's come together as a group, let's think about where. What we're feeling right now, what our bodies are feeling, center ourselves, focus on this goal that we have next has been really beneficial for us because we've seen a lot less of that fidgeting afterwards and really the students being able to get into their work.
0: What's been the reaction from parents? Were they skeptical hearing that their four-year-old is going to learn about their brain and have time to breathe and center themselves?
1: Yes, they were. You know, I think it's natural to be skeptical and as I said earlier in our interview, this is something that we don't do as adults. And so the parents when they first came to the mind up workshop, they they were thrilled about it, they were excited about it, but there were some naysayers. And so now when we have some of those naysayers come back and say You know, Billy or Bobby was at home and he was starting to get upset and he just stepped back and said, "Okay, I need a minute to to focus on flowers and candles, which is a breathing exercise that we do where you breathe in and smell the flowers and then blow out the candles. And the parent said to themselves, I'm, oh my goodness, I can't believe that instead of throwing a temper tantrum right now, my child is practicing flowers and candles. So it's amazing to see how they transfer it from school to home. And we think that that's something that our kids can teach their parents now, how to, how to practice that at home with their parents and invite them
0: to join them to do so. And you also do parent workshops. Tell me about that.
1: We do parent workshops. We do parent workshops once a month. They're not all on MindUp, but we do invite the parents to come in. One of the things that we want to do is have our students turnkey to the parents. So we're looking to have a student-run workshop where the students can talk to their parents about what they've learned through MindUp and then teach their parents some of the strategies that they use throughout the day.
0: I understand, again, that a grant helped you implement this uh, at your school. Um, But what happens now? So you're a year in. uh, Obviously, the grant probably isn't going to take you uh, for too much longer. So how do you then sustain this in your curriculum? Right.
1: So sustainability was something that we were concerned about when we were first starting. But the MindUp program and the grant really did help get us started. We have all the materials that we need. We have access to the digital platform that has a lot of materials for our teachers to utilize and we're able to have measures in place in our school improvement plan that allow us to keep this going so we know that we want this to stay in our school we our teachers like it our kids love it we're seeing benefits from it so we really made sure that our school improvement plan has ways for this to be sustainable, working with teachers for PD, working with parents through professional development as well, working with our students, making sure that we're having model classrooms. We're really letting the the staff and the community know that this is something that we believe in, that it's not something that is just going to be, you know, a fly by the night kind of thing. And so we've really put the strategies in place to keep this going at our building.
0: I've been speaking with Jessica Grutola. She's assistant principal at the International Magnet School for Global Citizenship in South Windsor. Thanks so much for telling us about Mind Up in your classroom. Oh, it was my pleasure. Coming up, we'll hear about a corporation based in Connecticut that's made mindfulness a priority for its employees. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up Friday, thousands have stood up against the Dakota Access Pipeline project, a controversial plan to ship crude oil from North Dakota to Illinois. On the next Where We Live, we'll get an update on the project and learn about the concerns surrounding it. We'll also check in on efforts to expand Connecticut's natural gas infrastructure with a reporter from the Hartford Current. That's coming up tomorrow. Today, we've been talking about how many of us struggle with work-life balance. Why is this a problem? Experts say living this way can hamper our ability to be creative. What can workplaces do to help us reach our potential where we're more in tune with our lives and more creative in our ideas? You can join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Some companies have made mindfulness for its employees a priority. Hartford-based Aetna has its own chief mindfulness officer. Andy Lee is that person. He joins us in studio. Andy, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much, Lucy.
0: Now, I'm not really familiar with this title, Chief Mindfulness Officer. So what do you do, and how did you find yourself in this role?
3: Well, I do believe I I might be the only Chief Mindfulness Officer out there. So um, what do I do? Well, my role at Aetna is really unique because um, my primary function right now is bringing mindfulness to our employees in a way that will help them to be more effective and also more stress-resilient, and just more happy at work. Um, but because we're a health insurance company, there's actually a whole other side to what I do, which is starting to bring mindfulness to our members, to the people who have our, our health insurance. So that just makes it like kind of a double challenge and a double you know, twice as interesting, really.
0: You're the chief mindfulness officer. When we talk about mindfulness, what are we, what are we talking about?
3: Well, mindfulness is a, is a quality of awareness, which is about being fully present in the moment, with an attitude of openness and curiosity. So a lot of times our minds are kind of shifting back and forth between the past and the future, and we are not that often actually in the present moment. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is paying attention to what's going on right here and right now with a sense, as I said, of openness and curiosity. In other words, letting go of our biases, our expectations, our judgments, and just being fully present with what's going on before we kind of make up our minds about it.
0: You said that um, Aetna started looking at mindfulness and, and, and practices within the company to help employees be more effective, um, for uh, to learn stress resiliency. Um, is this something that the staff at Aetna, did they communicate that they wanted something like this, or how did this even come to be?
3: It's, a, it's actually a really interesting story because it began with our CEO, Mark Bertolini. A number of years ago, he had a skiing accident, and he almost died in that accident, and Ended up recovering, but with permanent mer- nerve damage to, uh, to his left arm, which left him in chronic pain. And as a way to deal with that pain, he, uh, you know, he was prescribed opiates, and I think we all know how that turns out these days. Not a great way to go through life, let alone run a huge corporation. So he came upon mindfulness, meditation, and yoga as a way to manage his pain. And he's been doing that for seven or eight years now without medications, and he saw that how helpful that was to him. And he also saw the other benefits that mindfulness brought to him. And that's really what inspired him to make it available to, to employees. And he's really been a champion, which has been great.
0: And what was the reaction from staff?
3: Well, you know, I wasn't here at that time. I think that staff – I mean, Aetna has a long history of piloting things internally, like offering things to employees that they would later offer to our, um, to our customers, and so people were pretty used to that idea and pretty, pretty enthusiastic from what I can tell about this practice. Now, I'll tell you that probably there's people, a lot of people in the company at that time who had never heard of mindfulness, probably were thinking, OK, this is a CEO thing and we just kind of have to go along with it. But over the time, it's really gotten a lot of traction and a lot of support from the employees.
0: There's yoga classes at Aetna?
3: There are. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And meditation?
3: There are meditation – we offer mostly right now online mindfulness courses, which meet once a week for either 10 or 20 weeks. And um, when you're in that class, you're expected to do 15 minutes of meditation per day. So that's one way that a lot of people have kind of gotten involved in this. But we're also working with with an app, a mindfulness app called Headspace, piloting that internally and trying some other things internally to give people more – more opportunities to practice mindfulness and bring it into their day.
0: Has it been difficult, though, to, to um, have this when, you know, again, you're a for-profit company? I mean, you, you go from, what, one meeting to the next? I mean, I know how it is working at a, a media organization. You're always thinking about your next show and booking up your next guest, and um, it's just one thing after another. I mean, how do you put this into your your work culture where, again, you're able to still do your job and, and get the, you know, to be effective?
3: You know what? It's a challenge. <laughs> it's not easy because um, we are hectic. You know, We're running around all day from one meeting to the next, just as you said. However, if people stop to pay attention to really what they're doing and who's in charge of what they're doing, a lot of times people find that they have more control than they think. So they can actually decide, not always, but sometimes they can block out some time to just focus on things instead of, waiting for the next meeting to to come to them. Um, They can take 10 minutes in the morning before they get to work or when they get to work to just stop and let their mind calm down a little bit and say, okay, what do I really want to get done today? Between all the emails and the meetings, what do I really want to get done? And mindfulness helps us to strengthen our focus, to strengthen our ability to come back to what's important and to kind of take care of our minds throughout the day.
0: So let's talk about, um, you know, what's the point of all this? And, you know, we started the show mentioning um, because we go from one (coughs) task to another, you know, it doesn't give us time to be creative. So I'm I'm curious about if you could talk about that link.
3: So what happens during our day at work a lot is that we're kind of skittering along the surface of our experience. We move from one thing to the next until something else distracts us, and then we move to the next thing until we're interrupted by the next thing. And what happens is... And perhaps you've had the experience that when we're working on the computer, all of a sudden we realize that we've got eight windows open, two emails half written, and are actually not getting anything done. So the only way that we can really fully engage and do our best at work or with anything is if we take the time to be fully present with it, to to bring our full attention to it. And these days with our devices and um, all these other distractions we have, we don't often do that. And research has shown that in order to really do your best work, to be creative, to think deeply, um, we have to do that at least part of the time without being distracted. At a time and a place when we're not being distracted, when we can really let ourselves settle in on what's going on right here and right now. And that just does not happen often, as you know, um, today at work.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalva I'm in studio with Andy Lee. He's the chief mindfulness officer at Aetna as we look at um, the practice of mindfulness and encouraging creativity, uh, not only at the workplace, but also uh, at home. You mentioned that this is something that um, you offer your employees at Aetna, but also to people who are insured through Aetna. So um, talk talk us through about what kind of services that, that provides.
3: Um, right now, we do offer the same mindfulness courses to our members um, as we do to our employees. Now, you know, participating customers, employers need to buy these programs in order to make them available to their employees. So not everybody has them, but we do make them available. Um, Right now, actually, I'm working on really expanding what we are able to offer to our members. And it's going to be a work in progress. You know, I've only been here for about seven or eight months but we do want to make more resources available, such as an app, you know, things that people can, can engage in very easily, where you can listen to a mindfulness practice, also training programs and other information that helps people to learn more about mindfulness and how to bring it into their day.
0: And since uh, Aetna started uh, rolling out these, uh, these programs, um, how has that influenced you know, workplace uh, corporate culture around the country? Are other companies also um, bringing this into their, to their environments?
3: it It absolutely has, and um, I think Edna can take some credit for that because Mark Bertolini is um, he's a compelling speaker, and he's spoken about this um, publicly and with passion, as you can imagine. Um, it is part of a broader trend too. There are many large corporations who are doing this, including Ford Motor Company, General Mills, Google, you know, dozens of large corporations are looking at bringing mindfulness to their employees as a matter of fact. Over twenty percent of all large corporations are going to be offering some type of mindfulness practice um to their employees this year.
0: You know people do pay attention to what Aetna does. I know just recently in the news um it was reported that Aetna um is going to be ending their very flexible work at home policy. What's the reaction, and how do these programs you know help them i guess get used to the news and and changes within their workforce?
3: That's a good question. Um, first of all, um, Aetna is not actually ending its flexible work-from-home policy. They're making some changes for specific business reasons that will impact specific people. So over 40 percent of Aetna employees work from home. So that's not going to change anytime soon in any significant way. Um, but your broader point is well taken, which is that there's a lot of changes that impact us and, at organizations, changes to our jobs, changes to how we do things, to our expectations, you know, to what's expected of us. And, and what mindfulness can help us to do is to, to really look at the challenges that we're facing and not add additional mental um, stories and layers of, of worry and concern and projection on top of that. So mindfulness has been shown to help people deal with change more effectively because it, it's not, you know, we get to skip or turn down the volume on some of those conversations that we usually have internally about, oh, why me? Oh, this isn't fair. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't actually let our employers and let our managers know when there's something that we have concerns about. That's absolutely true. I do think that mindfulness can help us to to be constructive when we face challenges and to bounce back from challenges more effectively by being fully present in the moment and actually checking out, like, what is really changing and what's not changing? What am I being asked to do and what am I not being asked to do? And by staying in connection with reality and turning down the volume on those internal dialogues, those internal stories, we're able to deal with change more effectively.
0: And then for our listeners who want to learn more about just being mindful, I mean, besides uh, mentioning some of the apps that Aetna's working on, I know there's some out, um, you know, that people can download. What are some other ways for people to learn to be more mindful?
3: Well, one great place to start is how we listen. Because we listen to people all, the day, all day long, and we can do that in a number of ways. We can listen to people until we uh, decide what we want to say next. And then we move from listening to waiting. And when we're waiting to speak... Then we're not listening anymore. Um, so a great mindfulness practice is when we speak to someone, really try to pay attention to not only what they're saying, but the, the intention behind it, the body language behind it, and really opening up and letting go of our own dialogue, our own um, letting go of our own expectations about what they might be saying and why, and checking into what are they really trying to communicate, and just opening up to that. That's one. Another one that I'll share with you that's really important is this idea of multitasking. So there's this idea that we can actually, as humans, do more than one thing at once and potentially maybe be twice as productive. You know, if we uh, listen to a conference call and, you know, read, read a paper at the same time or, or uh, prepare a presentation at the same time, the fact is that multitasking doesn't work. Um, it may work for some real low kind of cognitive load, things like you can fold laundry and talk to your kids. That's okay. Okay but you actually cannot listen to a conference call and um, write an email at the same time. What you're doing is you're switching back and forth. And to our point earlier, that's gonna lead to less creativity, it's gonna lead to more mistakes, it's gonna lead to more stress, um, and it's gonna slow you down a lot. So I know that many times we don't have a choice. We have to multitask, but if you do have the choice, see if you can focus on one thing at a time. And I think that you'll find that you'll be more effective, um, you'll do better work, and you'll be less stressed. So that's one other great way to bring mindfulness into the day.
0: Andy Lee is Chief Mindfulness Officer at Aetna. Thanks so much for speaking with us and helping us learn a little bit more about being mindful.
3: Thank you for having me, Lucy.
0: Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie tolarski Check out wmprorg slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.